I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. And I'm Matt Bernico. Ooh, I'm a werewolf this week. <laughs> You're a werewolf this week. I'm a vampire this week. We don't have any fun sounds uh, other than sucking your blood, uh, but <laughs> but politely. What are you talking about? Vampires have all kinds no, no, of good politely. sounds. No, no, politely. That's their own. Yeah, well, oh, bro, okay. that's right. But that that's sort of an old timey thing. We don't really do that anymore. It, uh, it creates a, a bad. Sorry, I didn't mean to stereotype. A bad image of our community. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was a different time back then. Uh, yeah, if you uh, if you heard what we said 30 seconds ago, <laughs> it's a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Uh, unfortunately, not Universal Studios Monsters, uh, maybe next podcast. And uh, I don't know, Matt, um, what's going on with you this week? We got a lot to talk about, but let's just check in. How's, <laughs> how's your October panning out? It's great. So um let's see what's going on with me i've just been, i've been working a lot whatever but the real big news is that um my son bought we got hit we got his halloween costume he's gonna he's gonna be link nice. for halloween from zelda it's pretty good and i bought a spooky skeleton mask that i've just been wearing around the house <laughs> and that's been pretty fun <laughs> that's so, great just you know whenever you're having a boring a boring work from home day just get a skeleton mask for yourself. yeah I and it's a uh, it's a spooky home. Day. I like that being coincidental and not related to Halloween at all. Uh, my son's going to be linked for <laughs> Halloween. I also <laughs> happen to buy a skeleton mask. <laughs> yeah, it's man. It's a great one. It has uh, has some like great little LED nice. eyes. So they like uh, they flash green and it's really obnoxious and kind of hard to exist <laughs> with it on when they do that. But it's worth it in the end. So pretty cool. That's good. Uh, uh, how was your October been? How are you? How are you preparing for the spooky season? It's a busy October over here as well. Um, in Canada, we just had Thanksgiving, which is bizarre. Uh, we've been here eight, almost nine years, I guess. And still, I can't get used to having Thanksgiving before uh, Halloween. But I guess now that that's over, I can really settle into the spooky season. And I feel like I have some catching up to do now. So, you know, we're watching our favorite Halloween episodes of all your Favorite comedies, uh, Bob's Burgers, The Office, Community, and so on. We're, we're TV holiday people around this house for sure. Um, but as far as costumes go, I have to admit, my, my brain hasn't settled on one quite yet. So stay tuned. 
we'll see in the next couple of weeks what what I can manage to throw together with uh, the tools available to me in this apartment. That's great. Well, you, you got to prepare. You got to do you got to do whatever your personal uh, rituals are. <laughs> and I'm glad you're getting them done. Check those off your list. Exactly. Uh, making a list, checking it twice. Um, <laughs> a little early. This time, though, we're not doing a spooky episode. We did last time. Uh, you can check that out if you want. Instead, though, uh, we are talking about liberation theology once again on this podcast, but from a different angle. Um, I got crabby in the last couple of weeks <laughs> about liberation theology, and Matt agreed to indulge that crabbiness for an hour on this podcast. So you're all going to be subjected to that, I guess. Um, before we do that, Matt, maybe do you want to introduce us to, or introduce our listeners to our Patreon and then we'll be off to the races. Yeah, absolutely. This podcast is possible because people keep giving us money. That's the, that's the bare bones of it right there. Um, and we appreciate all of you people who give us money. It's really nice of you to do to, you know, give us some reason to be motivated enough to do this, to afford the hosting for this podcast. And it's great. So if you want to become one of those people, if you want to transform yourself to live a different kind of life and be a, a Patreon supporter for a podcast, you can by going to patreon.com slash the Magnificast. And you can support us at a bunch of different levels that uh, they, they get all kinds of fun little rewards for doing so. Um, at the higher levels, you get things like a sticker, some some exclusive stickers that you're not going to find anywhere else except for our Patreon only. Uh, you also get access to our Discord channel, which has been pretty cool. Um, a new a new issue of the monthly review is out, so we're definitely going to have to uh, organize another monthly review voice chat <laughs> and kind of talk about that. Uh, we've been doing that the last the last two issues. It's been really fun. And um, oh, the other thing is that you get the special behind the paywall Patreon only podcast called the lock-in <laughs> it's kind of a it's a half alternate reality game where dean and i pretend to be youth pastors and uh kind of answer questions and give and give advice to good christian people and also we talk about current events so a little bit a little bit of everything thrown in there um okay yeah but you can go support us there and if you can't that's fine too whatever tell your tell a friend tell a friend about our podcast say hey there's a weird podcast i listen to and maybe you'd enjoy it and maybe they wouldn't <laughs> You can be the judge of that, though. Um, okay, that's it. That's the pitch. That's great. Uh, I'm sold. I'm going to sign up to it for sure. And uh, you can have half of it, Matt. want to do that. Half my subscription. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Okay. Um, <laughs> this week, as I said, we are talking about liberation theology, and I did get crabby, and I'll tell you why. Um, all right. There was big news this month that uh, the Chilean Christian socialist and liberation theologian Pablo Richard died this month. Um, there was a pretty good write-up in the National Catholic Reporter, which is a, a, I don't know, a neat Catholic media outlet, if you're not familiar. Um, that outlet has a history of reporting on liberation theology here and there. They used to do a lot more of it, but they can be relied on to still do some of it, and that's fantastic. And they wrote a, a nice little, or they published at least, a nice little um, write-up on Pablo Richard. So a little bit of background on him. You can read the report for more. But uh, in the 70s in Chile, if you don't know, there was a really amazing experiment in socialism where a leader named Salvador Allende was democratically elected and was a really radical guy and then tragically was deposed in a coup only three years later in 1973 by a right-wing dictator. 
And in the middle of all that, there were all these Christians who formed a group called Christians for Socialism, and they were extremely rad, and Pablo Richard was one of them, and he was he was part of the kind of more radical Marxist group within that contingent of folks. So uh, a really amazing character. He was exiled after Pinochet, the dictator, came to power. Um, he went to Costa Rica, did a much more liberation theology stuff, and was holding the torch ever since until uh, he passed away this year. So it was great to see the write-up in NCR, but it really got me thinking because... In Chile, uh, there's been a ton of political activity in the last few years, uh, but most recently they are in a process of writing up a new constitution to replace the uh, constitution that was previously in Chile under Pinochet that is still operative. And so they're going to rewrite it. There's a bunch of left-wing people in the constituent assembly, and that's very cool. And it just occurred to me that uh, Pablo Richard died and nobody ever bothered to ask him in English media what he thought about what was happening in that country, in his home country that he was exiled from, uh, for being a Christian socialist. And I just thought that's so wild. Like, what a major oversight on the part of English uh, media. And it just got me thinking about all kinds of other things, uh, other oversights that we're making even while we have these liberation theologians alive. So I thought it'd be a good chance for us to sit down, revisit liberation theology, and think through maybe, uh, I don't know, how it uh, has fallen off the radar and why it shouldn't, why we should be paying more attention to it. Um, does that sound right to you, Matt? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about all this? I'm just, like, upset about it. <laughs> but uh, how, are you, how are you reacting to this news? Yeah, um... I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm not as upset as you are and that's okay. <laughs> um, but I am perturbed. I'm annoyed. I don't know. You know, it's such a weird thing. Um, okay. Liberation theology obviously has a pretty big spot in the sun of, of like Latin American politics for sure. Right. You can't really tell the story of the left in Latin America without talking about liberation theology to some extent. I mean, it's not it's not the entirety of it for sure. There's all kinds of different things going on there, but it's definitely part of the story. Um, and uh, I think it's a bummer that it's, you know, kind of under the radar that people aren't reporting on it or, or you know, whatever. Um, or, you know, no one's kind of coming back around to to ask. I don't know, like no one no one's asking Gutierrez what he thinks of Pedro Castillo or whatever <laughs> right and that seems like it should be a, big, a pretty big deal um in Peru but whatever I, I mean I think the other thing the other side of the story is too is that uh this is not just the story in Latin America it's also the story in the United States um uh, people care I think less and less about liberation theology um as a thing I mean there was a time when um you know the Christians for Socialists were not just a Chilean phenomenon but it was also a phenomenon in the United States um, but I think like for the most part, liberation theology and, um, and, and the movements surrounding it kind of just become like a, an intellectual curiosity, mm. um, for people in the United States. And that sucks because it's clearly not just an intellectual curiosity. I mean, barring, barring the Marxist kind of part of it, liberation theology in the United States, I mean, has its own sort of history, um, that isn't, uh, isn't necessarily all about Marxism and socialism, but, you know, it has a lot, has a lot to do with all kinds of things like, um, like, I don't know, like black liberation or, or queer theology. Like these are movements that are really heavily influenced by liberation theology. And, uh, it seems, uh, it seems wrong to sort of write, write liberation theology off, or maybe just like under recognize its role in, 
uh, contemporary politics uh, even moving forward. I, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm a, I'm a biased person because I have this podcast with you and we talk about it a lot. But liberation theology still seems like a pretty essential idea to Christianity. So much so that I don't know if I'd really want to be a Christian if I didn't, I think, find the things in liberation theology to be very motivating. Mm. So I don't know. This seems uh, I get why it touched a nerve with you. And just talking about it now, I'm mad too. <laughs> now I'm upset. So we can get yeah, into it. You know, it's weird because I think um, on the one hand, I understand that we have the benefit of being people who spend a lot of time and had a lot of time to spend uh, learning about all this stuff. And not everybody has that, right? Like, I don't know. I, I like I lucked into knowing about liberation theology, and I'm really grateful for that. I had a chance to study it and so on and so forth. And that's very cool. So I'm happy to always spread the good news and try to learn about it with other folks. But when it comes to big media apparatuses, I think that's where I lose my patience a little bit, just because there are whole uh, organizations, you know, English organizations that have historical relationships to people in other countries and have long histories of very good reporting on this kind of stuff that all of it has kind of faded away. And I don't get the impression that there was like a moment when a bunch of editors said, we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> you know, like it's not like anyone's out there just kind of belligerently being neg negligent or something like that. I don't, I mean, maybe, maybe that's the case and I just don't know, but it doesn't <laughs> seem like that. Uh, it seems more like it has sort of faded out of, I don't know, just the, the purview of people in English speaking media. But I think that I, I lose my patience because I also feel like if we can't read this kind of material in English, you know, if nobody is asking Pablo Richard what he thinks about Chile or asking Gustavo Gutierrez what he thinks about Pedro Castillo in English, then how else are most of us supposed to know? I think if you have the benefit of being bilingual, more power to you. That's fantastic. Uh, you're a superhero to me, a person who has tried to learn languages many times and <laughs> never done it successfully. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, like we're living in a time where it is so easy to like Leonardo Boff has a blog, like the Brazilian liberation theologian Leonardo Boff has a blog where he's constantly complaining about uh, Jair Bolsonaro and how bad he is and so on. And I just don't quite understand why English uh, editors aren't, you know, like calling him up every day being like, can we translate this or can we get a comment from you or can we publish something from you about this or whatever it might be, you know. So all that to say, I think there's yeah. a real kind of crisis of attention, if I could put it that way. And I want to say it's reflective of a kind of... Um, I don't know how to put it like read charitably. I think it is a global North uh, short term memory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that's the best yeah. spin I can put on it. Uh, and at worst, it's a uh, uh, I don't know, intentional neglect of some of the most important voices in uh, world Christianity today. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, you could chalk some of this up to the the end of the Cold yeah, War, you know, totally. <laughs> like, of course, like the um, you know, it reminds me of like, I don't know, in like the 60s or whatever, in the New York Times, there was like a big article that was like against liberation theology, like trying to talk, tell you about how bad it was. And it was in the, it was in the New York Times because like, um, you know, the the angle of like religious people doing socialism is like scandalous and interesting and like it evokes, all, you know, presses all the right buttons for someone to publish it. Um, 
you know, but but after that, I mean, I guess, you know, it might not end up in places like the New York Times. But but that being said, I think that you're exactly right. It's just sort of like um, <laughs> the, the crisis of attention. Yeah, I mean, in in religious reporting circles, in uh, all kinds of different publications, um, uh, Catholics and I mean, Christians in general, they're saying dumb stuff all the time. <laughs> right. And it gets reported on constantly. Why? <laughs> why does nobody care about uh, Leonardo Boff in, in his in his blog or whatever? <laughs> I don't get it. It's just like it's just bonkers. I don't know. So many um, so much time and space is given to reactionary Catholics uh, or reactionary Christians. I don't want to just say Catholics, but it's like, you know, both both sides of that split. They uh, there is a lot of attention given to them for like really no good reason. It's not like, you know, whatever, whatever, whoever, uh, whatever bishops take on vaccines or masks this this coming week is that important. Um, but why not actually listen to somebody mm-hmm. else? Um, so I don't know. A, a, a crisis of attention seems right to me. Yeah. So I thought what we could do in this episode is maybe talk through why liberation theology is still relevant and maybe give a sort of, I guess, speculative uh, pathway to thinking through why it has fallen off of people's radars. And we're going to try to make the case that we should be paying more attention to it. And I think as people who consume Christian media. I mean, I do. I read a lot of them, right? I read uh, National Catholic Reporter. I read America and I write for America, right? I read Commonweal and and lots of other ones and not just Catholics, right? Sojourners and, and so on. Um, lots of outlets that I think are very good. I want to make that clear. Like, I think they're all doing their best and uh, and they publish some really fantastic stuff. But I think as consumers of that media, it's also important to express, you know, we do actually want to hear more about what's going on in the global south. And we want to hear it from the folks who have uh, lived experience of uh, the tumultuous decades that have made up um, the journey of of liberation in especially a place like Latin America uh, till today. So maybe, Matt, we can start off talking a little bit about liberation theology and what it is for folks who may or may not know. Um, and uh, by the time we get to the end, we can try to sort out why English Christian media has kind of like forgotten that liberation theology ever happened <laughs> to put it maybe a little hyperbolically. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, liberation theology is when God cares about poor people. All right. I've done my part. <laughs> Dean, you tell me the rest. All right. Uh, I'll give you two um, historical moments that I'm stealing from Michael Lowy. Uh, Michael Lowy wrote a cool book called The War of Gods, which is a a short history of liberation theology from a kind of sociological perspective up through the 90s. And he, uh, I think, rightly points to two dates. Um, Vatican II, which I guess is a few years, (laughs) not exactly a date, an event, we'll say. Vatican II in the 60s and the Cuban Revolution, which uh, was successful in 1959. So the Cuban Revolution precedes Vatican II, which is very important. And those two events are kind of the formative events for liberation theology. So on the one hand, you have a, a political event, the Cuban Revolution, that overthrows a dictator and starts to experiment with socialism in the 60s. And then meanwhile, in the Vatican, you have all these cardinals and theologians and popes getting together to think about how Catholicism is going to change its orientation toward the modern world. So those two things are kind of the foundational moments. Uh, And then meanwhile, you have all these Christians running around in Latin America doing things like setting up 
labor unions and peasant associations and uh, all kinds of other stuff on the ground, you know, working class movements and so on. And all of that kind of forms the backdrop of what gets like formalized or codified as what we call liberation theology today, right? Like people writing books, uh, people like Leonardo Boff, who are maybe putting like uh, a more theological language to the phenomena that they're seeing on the ground. Does that sound right, Matt? <laughs> as like a quick and dirty yeah. explanation of the origins. Yeah, I think that's that's good. It's actually really worth uh, making that point too that like liberation theology is not a collection of books that people have yeah. written, right? It's like uh, it's a it's a certain way of like embodying Christianity and kind of practicing it. Yeah, uh, Lowy actually uses the term liberationist Christianity instead of liberation theology, which I think is really good. It's like a bigger term. Yeah, maybe uh, a, another piece of it that I think is really important too is this idea of like base communities. So this is one way of uh, maybe drawing out that point you're making, Matt, that it's not just about books. Like um, in Latin America, there was this important uh, bishops conference in 1968 in Medellin, Colombia, where the bishops called for what they called the base communities. And they were kind of responding to things that were already happening and then also giving their blessing to keep doing it and, and proliferate them. But these base communities are associations where Christians get together and they talk about their uh, justice issues, you know, whether that has to do with women's rights or the rights of the poor and so on. And it's those base communities that really form kind of like the tissue of what liberation Christianity or liberation theology actually is on the ground. So that gives you a little bit of a, a character or flavor of the, the stuff that's going on there. Um, but out of all of that, you have these theologians like Boff, like Richard, like Gutierrez, who kind of emerge not as like spokespeople of the movement, but as people trying to codify it or communicate it in a public way via things like books and so on. And that is also actually very mm -hmm. important, right? To um, have a kind of intelligentsia or like an organic intellectual class that emerges out of it. It's like yeah. extremely unique and very cool. Yeah, that's probably a good way of putting it. That it is sort of that uh, phenomena of uh, organic intellectual. I mean, they they were priests, so you know, so, some actual training <laughs> and being intellectuals as well. But, you know, it's not like they were, uh, I, I don't know. It's not like they were all like professors or whatever. Um, yeah, that's a, probably a, a good note. Um, anyways, in, in that, the effort of codification or, you know, in those books and in like the, the conferences that kind of spun out of them as well, there's a lot of cross pollination that happens between liberation theology in the global South and like anti-imperialism and missionary work. Uh, from the global north. So there's just like all kinds of uh, cr cross pollination and you see things like, I, I don't know, like Christians for Socialism in the United States or um, Catholic Action, um, even though that I guess that pre uh, figures some of this as well. Um, but in like, I don't know, other things too, like like Methodists for Social Action or whatever, even like some of those other groups, you know, they all kind of come out of this like moment um, where uh, liberation theology is like coming to the United States in in one way or another, right? And it's like not always necessarily called that in the United States, or it, it gets spun out in different ways. But I think that's you know a lot of these like um, more social movement related Christian organizations in like the seventies and the eighties. Uh, those are some of the receipts of um, of liberation theology coming to, to North America. Um, but uh, you know, after that, we all know kind of the story that there's the collapse of the Soviet Union 
And that creates all kinds of uncertainties about liberation theology. And I mean, I think that probably takes the wind out of the sails a little bit <laughs> in, in some cases, too. Um, yeah, I don't know. Dean, do you have anything else you want to say about liberation theology and and uh, the collapse of, of communism <laughs> yeah. when it's all over? Yeah, well, I guess uh, it's good to sort of focus on that transition or that that moment like prior to the collapse of the USSR and then what happens after. Because like you're saying, there's all this cross pollination going on. Um, and I think like one thing that I've always found so impressive before the fall of the Soviet Union is that like, even in the U S which is, you know, the heart of the cold war, Catholic media in particular was often such a, like an impressive, um, I don't know how to put it, like a, a collector of dispatches of what was going on in the left in other parts of the world. So, like, at the National Catholic Reporter, for example, there was a woman named Penny Larneau, who I think we've talked about on the show in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a, a journalist and really a fascinating person. She was not, like, a communist or, to my knowledge, even necessarily socialist. I mean, she she strikes me as, like, a really radical liberal or something. Uh, but she did some incredible reporting on liberation theology and uh, on-the-ground stuff. Like, she knew these people up close and personal. She... Uh, lived in Latin America and so on. And they were publishing dispatches from her at NCR like super regularly. And it was hard hitting stuff. I mean, you know, she was like doing investigative work on like martyred priests and nuns and stuff like that. Um, And it wasn't uncommon to find that kind of reporting in lots of uh, religious media in the U.S. and in Canada and I think that is such a striking thing to sort of I guess, feel the loss over the absence of now in kind of a post-Soviet world. Mm-hmm. And I do think the collapse of the Soviet Union is a sort of transformative moment. I mean, there was still some of that reporting going on in the 90s. Like, don't get me wrong. Um, I don't think it like completely just tanked everything. But, you know, just like everything else, just like the left and all the rest of it, like whatever you think of the Soviet Union, um, having it disappear from the global stage really made a huge impact on the way people understand the left and, and report on it and so on. And I think when it comes to something like Catholic media, it feels like that world is like ancient history in some ways, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, well, a- after that, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, so many other things happen. Um, in Latin America, though, the really important... I mean, this is such a... <laughs> This is such a constructed and kind of like uncareful way to talk about a historical <laughs> epoch or whatever, but whatever. I got this is a podcast. I don't know what you want from us <laughs> folks. Um, but <laughs> you know, sort of this this post-Soviet time um in Latin America is marked with all kinds of different uh political moments and situations. But the one that's important to this conversation is what people call the pink tide. I don't think people in Latin America call it pink tide. I think that's a I think that's a North American. Yeah, it's uh, like a sociology actually. term or something. Yeah, right. But really what it's referring to is like the rise of like social democracy and the rise of socialism once again in Latin America through people like, I don't know, like Chavez, you know, to name somebody like very, (laughs) very hard. That's right there. Right. Um, And uh, I mean, the the pink tide uh, kind of like rising point, it sort of reconfigures all the old categories from uh, the struggles in the 60s and 70s. Um, And now there's even another newer wave of, of, of sort of like pink tide that's sort of changing everything again uh, like like Dean mentioned a minute ago the um the ascendancy of the communist uh movement in Chile 
or uh, Pedro Castillo in in Peru. I mean, just to name a few places. I mean, Lula in Brazil. The list just goes on and on, right? Like, there's all these different places in um, throughout Latin America where uh, socialist politicians, socialist movements are kind of like bubbling up once again. And isn't that interesting? Um, but man, wouldn't it be fascinating to know <laughs> what what the uh, what the folks of like the liberation theologians, the people in these base communities, actually think about the ascendant socialist movements uh, within their countries? I think that would be a really fascinating thing to know about. If nothing else, this podcast is a cry from the wilderness to, for someone to please write about this and tell us what's going on. Um, but anyways, yeah, like Dean said, Christian media has kind of forgotten about liberation theology as as a thing, and it's just kind of. It's just kind of uh, it's it's nothing. It, nothing's being reported on that now. And I think that's yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, I think the saddest thing to me is it feels like, you know, these liberation theologians are getting older and maybe we can talk about this in a minute. Like, it's true that liberation theology has changed and it's not as uh, recognizable or, or as I don't know how to put it. I don't want to use the word vibrant, but like it, I guess it's functionally different now in Latin America than it was in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Right. Like that's true. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's really a shame that like the only time we hear about people uh, like liberation theologians today is when they die. Right. So it's like Pablo okay. Richard uh, or when Ernesto Cardinal died just last year. Um, you know, whatever you make of like Daniel Ortega, for instance, in Nicaragua today, like Cardinal had a pretty powerful critical voice of Ortega. And I, for one, would have been genuinely interested to hear more about what he thought. And I'm sure he had lots of thoughts about it um, and maybe even shared them with Spanish media and so on. But like, I don't have access to that by virtue of being bad at thinking in other languages. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. like. Uh, you can only imagine the folks who we're going to lose in the next five to 10 years. Like that generation is aging and that is the generation that has been through it all. Right. Like not only the, the collapse of the Soviet union and so on, but like these are people who've been imprisoned by dictators, right. They've been uh, right in the middle of the struggle and everything else. And they're watching their countries change right before their eyes. Like, I think about someone like Richard, or maybe I'll take somebody who's alive right now. Like Sergio Torres is a Chilean theologian who uh, is quite old. I don't know how old he is, but old enough. Um, he was in exile uh, during the Pinochet coup as well. He came to the United States and he was like very instrumental in establishing Christians for Socialism across the U.S. as a Chilean exile. Super important guy. He moved back to Chile and uh, he lives there now. And like I saw an interview somewhere with him um, in a Chilean source just talking about the, the process of like changing the Constitution and so on. And I was like, this is so cool and really interesting. Like this is a guy who was forced out of his own country because socialism had been brutally crushed and now is reflecting on what it's like to be in that country when socialism is like you know, reappearing in all kinds of really creative ways. And I thought, I can't believe that I have to like dig so hard to find this guy's opinion. <laughs> like this is a guy who was in the United States for a long time, uh, new people in a number of editorial positions and so on. And still uh, it's like, I only know about him because I guess I'm like a history nerd or something. And like that, that feels like a very bad indicator of, uh, how we're paying attention to what's going on in the global south. Yeah, totally. You know, um, I, I think there's like, there are pretty big implications for the way that this 
there are big implications for what this might mean for I think Christian people in not just in Latin America but in North America as well, probably everywhere, right? That like um, liberation theology supplied a particular type of imagination for Christians who are becoming involved yeah. in politics and. Uh, the absence of those voices, you know, forecloses on certain possibilities. I think that sucks. But it's just like, you know, we um, we do invest energy and time into like, uh, you know, people re- reporting on Christian solidarity, you know, like what's going on in a certain country, like what struggles are there present. But it seems like um, uh, maybe an important piece of that solidarity that's missing is is figuring out what the people who have like, you know, kind of given so much to, to Christian politics um, you know, like, what do they actually think, or what are they, what are they doing? Maybe it's just like a, I don't know, maybe a hard, a hard target to hit or something. But uh, it seems like it's actually really important. You know, if we're, if we're invested in solidarity and in struggle with the people in other places um, because of our common religion or whatever, um, and maybe our class interests as well, um, it would be, uh, it'd be good to share. You know, not just uh, their struggles, but also like the people who are leading them or kind of speaking uh, power in those situations. Yeah. I mean, I guess in that respect, too, it is worth bringing up, like we said a minute ago, liberation theology is functionally different today than it was in the past. And I think that you can cut some English media some slack for, I don't know, like, it's not the case that you never read a good article about what's happening in Latin America and English Catholic media. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> right. Sure. Like, and I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Like, I'm really genuinely happy to that people are still on those beats and still covering it and so on. But I think at the same time, like base communities are still around. Right. In fact, there was a great article in America uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. I read um, about base communities in Brazil and what they're doing to um, help thwart the pandemic. And, you know, one of the takeaways from that was that they're not gone. You know, they're still around. They're an important organizing apparatus and so on. And I think that's the tough thing for me is like, um, like you said, Matt, they liberation theology provides this kind of imaginative horizon for people in the global north. I think if you're a Christian person living in Canada and the U.S., it's really hard to see Christianity as a liberating faith tradition. It's like you have to work really hard yeah. to make that happen for yourself to like <laughs> to conjure that that up. Right. And uh, there it would be so much more helpful if there was also a steady stream of news from the global south where actually Christians like the the pathway to Christianity being liberative is being blazed there, right? Like that's where they're so much farther along that path than we are, like way more advanced, and that's where the lessons are. And I just think a lot about how like Fray Beto, this Dominican priest in Brazil, is constantly talking about Bolsonaro. Uh, constantly writing books, giving talks, all this kind of stuff. You can follow him on Twitter, right? He's on Facebook. Like, these are people who are not hard to find, um, but for whatever reason, they're impossible to find in English Catholic media. And to me, that just speaks to, like, I don't know, like, it's symptomatic of uh, maybe, like I said earlier, kind of short-term memory or historical memory loss. Maybe it's symptomatic of thinking that liberation theology is passe when I think that's a misguided judgment. I don't really know how to chalk it up, but at the end of the day, it's, like, a huge missed opportunity and one that, you know, like, we don't have forever to to kind of mine those uh, theological resources. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, A good point. So religion writers, you're on, you're on notice. 
<laughs> not really. I mean, I'm not throwing shade at anyone in particular on this, but just like, I guess I am a little bit. I don't know. No one in particular, though. Um, but let, let's pivot now from being mad at the journalists. <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about, I guess, like what it is that like liberation theology might still mean or like how it might still be relevant, I guess. Like, I guess if that that's the that's what's on us. Yeah, right. Yeah. If we think it's so important, we should probably make the case. <laughs> so let's do that right now. So like you mentioned ago, Dean uh, Pablo Richard, he died recently, and there's this nice piece in NCR about his life, and I liked it a lot. It was good to read it. Um, and there's a, a few quotes, I think, that are from that piece specifically that are worth bringing up in this exact uh, exact moment. So I'm going to read them, and then we can talk about them. Okay. So this is, again, from the piece um, from from um, uh, from Richard and... Um, it's kind of there's a few different things going on in it, but it's fine. It doesn't really need any more explanation than that. <laughs> Richard says this in a new post communist world order where the free market reigns supreme in all but a few nations. Richard believes liberation theology is not dead, but faces new challenges. Uh, Richard said it was too soon to deliver the eulogies for liberation theology. He also said just as forcefully that large scale political dreams that fuel the Cuban or Nicaraguan revolution can no longer be sustained. It's a bummer. Um, anyways, he goes on to say, given that the immediate task for the progressive church is to work on a smaller scale to build communities of hope among the poor, Richard added, if it's not possible to take political power, we need to create a new power in the grassroots. We need to develop a new theology, a new ethic of life that discerns between the God of life and the idols of the market, Richard said. We need to construct an alternative to the logic of the market. Um, cool. I, I mean, I think this is... <laughs> This seems actually extremely prescient, right? That liberation theology is not a thing that happened in the 1960s. It's not a thing that only happens in uh, or, or is only relevant in the global south. But um, I mean, from this perspective, liberation theology is something that is extremely relevant to people who even live in North America or wherever, right? Anywhere where a market economy is forcing you into an awful life and making you, uh, I mean, misprioritizing life um, and prioritizing markets over life. Uh, it seems like liberation theology still has something pretty important to say. Yeah, I think that's also one thing that I find so fascinating about liberation theology is liberation theologians have uh, been, they've shown themselves to be remarkably plastic and responsive to the times, right? Like, even internally, liberation theology in the beginning was predominantly predominantly written by men, uh, usually written by people who were who would be classified as white in Latin America and so on. And over time, those liberation the theologians challenged by other people, you know, women like Yvonne Guevara in Brazil or uh, people like uh, Marcela Althes Reed from Argentina, right? These uh, voices who really challenged them, James Cone in the U.S. and so on, to take account of gender, race, etc. Uh, they've been able to, I think, hear that in a lot of ways and and pivot accordingly, and to see them also pivot according to the changing political terrain or kind of the change of neoliberalism and so on. Like, those are things that I find I would find genuinely useful to know about. Right. As like a Christian person trying to discern my way in the world. Uh, I want to know what Gutierrez thinks about, um, you know, Gustavo Gutierrez, for folks who don't know, is one of the fathers of liberation theolo theology. He's Peruvian. Um, 
I would love to know not only what he thinks about the victory of Pedro Castillo, but also the death of somebody like Abimel Guzman, who is the leader of a really controversial Maoist uh, Shining Path movement that Gutierrez did not like, <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, you know, I want to hear what does Gutierrez think about his death? What are his reflections on Shining Path now? What are his reflections on Pedro Castillo and so on? You know, I want to know what do these liberation theologians think about somebody like Eva Morales, you know, the first indigenous leader in that entire region, right? Like, these are all things that I find hard to figure out as a person invested in a left-wing tradition. And uh, it would be nice to kind of have a guide, like someone like Richard, who's saying, if it's not possible to take political power in the way that whatever, Fidel and Che did it, then how could we create a new power at the grassroots? It's like, yes, please keep telling me that. <laughs> I want to know more about how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's it's not just like a curiosity. It it would it would benefit yeah, us exactly. to know, right? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good way to put it. Um, cool. Well, let me read this other thing too here that I thought was actually um pretty relevant as well. I'm not Catholic myself. Everyone knows this about <laughs> me, <laughs> but I do from time to time still read American Magazine. I'm even published it one time a long time ago. Um, anyways, there is a really great article in America that I came across earlier in the summer, uh, written by David Anchakis, who is the uh, the host of the Liberation Theology podcast. And it's good, in case you didn't <laughs> know. <laughs> you should know. Anyways, he wrote this really cool article that I thought was really instructive that actually cuts to the core of so much of this. Um, the article is called Once I Discovered Liberation Theology, I Couldn't Be Catholic Without It. Um, anyways, go look it up. It's on, it's on uh, America. But I'm going to read this part here. Marginalized communities in the United States confront domination daily. Workers who toil for poverty-level wages, indigenous nations whose lands remain occupied, people of color whom the repressive state apparatus systemically surveils, imprisons, and murders. Aggressions abound, and people are fed up with the lack of change. They want more than the cosmetic reforms. They want total liberation from our racist, classist, sexist systems that uh, that systems are hurting my friends at the parish. That's why liberation theology still has immense relevance, even in the United States. So many years after the publication of Gustavo Gutierrez's A Theology of Liberation in 1972. Since liberation theology is nothing other than theological reflection on oppression and on the people's commitment to freedom from this oppression, liberation theology will continue to be a useful approach for Christians as long as oppression remains. Um, it is a good word from David for sure. I am really into this take that um, liberation theology is not, again, it's not like, uh, I don't know, like you go to college and you figure out uh, a discipline that you want to study. And then you want to find like a sub discipline within that discipline and then you get really into it. And like, that's not what liberation theology <laughs> is. Um, liberation theology is uh, like, like David says, I think he's right is a theological reflection on, on liberation and oppression. And um, man, it, it can't just be like a bunch of books that you read in seminary or a weird niche interest you have, right? Liberation theology seems like it has to be so much more than that. Which is exactly why it's important that those voices are still brought to light. That you that you know people still <laughs> go figure out what Leonardo Boff thinks about <laughs> Bolsonaro or whatever. I want to know. It's important. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's also important because the like theological liberation theology will always be present as long as oppression exists. I think David's absolutely right. And to extend that, like. As the conditions of oppression change, the discourse about that in a theological uh, register is going to yeah. change. And that is so essential to pick up on. And I think the biggest thing is that, like, 
the reason I'm crabby about it is that the discourse is happening all the time already, right? Like, in Latin America, liberation theology is going on. People are doing it, right? Like, they are talking about it, they're thinking about it, they're organizing around it, and so on and so forth. It's in uh, Canada and the United States that it's like people feel desperate to hear, I don't know, like, the latest from pick your favorite sort of like liberal Christian theologian who has something vaguely just to see to say, you know? Right. And it's mm-hmm. like, we shouldn't really be satisfied with that when we know that there are so many powerful voices elsewhere, uh, that are being heard in their local context. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's just like, not only would it be useful, not only would it be interesting and important, et cetera, but it would also be a way of recognizing that like uh, our sort of vision of oppression in places like the U.S. and Canada, the things that inform our our imaginations are uh, usually pretty myopic. And it's important to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, expand our purview, expand our way of, of seeing how those struggles manifest in other parts of the world And just like people did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in the United States, uh, we should take our lead from those folks, right? Uh, Come alongside them, uh, build those bridges on purpose, uh, do that translation work, do those interviews, and and all of that. Uh, Because at the end of the day, uh, that is how you do theological reflection on oppression. Like, you have to be sensitized to what that oppression looks like around the world and that means listening a lot more carefully, I guess, than I see us doing now. That's right. So everybody got your pen and paper. <laughs> um, write a letter to your favorite Christian publication <laughs> and tell them to prioritize this particular thing for us. Because people on a podcast. You know, you let know. me say this. I I've never talked about being a journalist on this podcast. I mean, apart from the fact that people know that I am one, I guess, and I wrote a bunch of articles and so on, but the the craft of it or the world of it, I, I don't get into. And that's mostly because I don't feel myself as part of that, that guild or world. I was, I didn't go to journalism school. I got into it by accident and, and so on. The, the good news about that is you too can get into it by accident. <laughs> There's no secret code to doing it. Uh, in fact, you can send me a DM and I will help you do it. I will help you figure it out. If you're a, a, especially a bilingual person who can read Spanish or Portuguese and you want to uh, correct this record by submitting articles about these liberation theologians, like you can do it. People can do it on their own volition and not wait around. And I think it's going to take that actually, like people who are invested in the conversation kind of going out of their way to, uh, you know, find those voices and, and amplify them and ask for the interviews and so on and so forth. Like that's probably the only way it's going to happen. I mean, I, I love my editors. I've been fortunate to have lots of really good editors at many different publications. I think they probably would have let me publish really whatever I wanted to. If I, (laughs) if I wanted, if I came to them with something like this, Um, But I just don't have the skills to do a good job at it. Right. And the editors are not assigning them as assignments to their reporters. So I don't know. Maybe this is like a bizarre call at the end of this podcast to be like, (laughs) if you if you want to learn journalism chops, you can come to the the Dean Detloff School of Bad Journalism and I'll teach you how to write a pitch email or something. I don't know what I'm saying, but it's just like it's important to um create, uh, I guess, uh, uh, another generation of journalists, like people like Penny Lerneau, right, who are 
genuinely committed to telling these stories in English outlets for people who can only read English because we live in an English chauvinist world, whether we want to or not. And that's the only way it's going to change. I think that's good. All right. Slide into Dean's DMs. Ask him how to write a pitch. It's so easy. It's really just, you know, maybe a a small paragraph, just a few sentences. Even Uh, you can you can do it. We believe in you. All right. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can slide into Dean's DMs at uh, is it is it's just Dean underscore Detloff or is it just it's all one word at Dean Detloff on Twitter. There you go. Dean's inviting you to do that, to get journalism advice. (laughs) Good luck. Um, (laughs) Good luck to Dean, not to you. Dean's a uh, a great teacher that can tell you all about it, but just good luck (laughs) to you all writing, I guess. Um, Great. Uh, Cool. Our intro music is by Omari Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. We'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Least I would have